You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Greetings, gentle listener. It's your friendly neighborhood factoid purveyor, Moxie Labouche, going off book, off script, and probably off the rails today. This episode's going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be a regular full episode of Your Brain on Facts. As many people know, I had surgery last week, and recovery's been kind of up and down for me. It takes about 12 hours to research, record, and edit a podcast, and I just haven't had it in me, really, for the the whole shebang. So what we're going to have are some fan-favorite segments, as suggested by fellow listeners, and the first episode, well, most of the first episode, of my new podcast, Science with Savannah, Age 7, that I've been teasing for a little while now. The first clip today was suggested by a Twitter follower whose name I love, The Most Stable Genius, from our episode, Surprise Polyglot, which was all about languages you didn't even know you were speaking, and they wanted to hear about Yiddish. Today's episode makes me excited for two reasons. First, the topic was voted on by our patrons at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. All patrons, regardless of contribution level, get to vote on an episode topic once a month. Secondly, I get to talk about Yiddish. I freaking love Yiddish. You should use as many Yiddish words as you possibly can, and you're probably using more than you think. Let's start the explanation of what Yiddish is by telling you what it is not. Yiddish is not Hebrew. Though they are both historically used by Jews, they are not the same language. They do share an alphabet that contains no capital letters and is read from right to left, though. The reason the two are often linked in people's minds is that Yiddish speakers usually learned to read Hebrew in childhood, since holy texts and prayers were written in classical Hebrew. But that form of Hebrew is very different from the modern Hebrew spoken today in Israel, which few Yiddish speakers would be able to understand. Linguistically, Yiddish and Hebrew are as different from one another as Japanese is from Chinese. Yiddish is, however, quite similar to German, which makes sense since both are Germanic languages. The word Yiddish is the Yiddish word for Jewish, so it would be technically correct to refer to someone speaking Yiddish as speaking Jewish, but the average person is likely to misinterpret that, so probably better not to. You can think of Yiddish as the international language of the Ashkenazi Jews of Eastern Europe, who typically spoke it in addition to the dominant language of their area. It's generally believed that Yiddish became a language of its own sometime between 900 and 1100 CE, but it was primarily a spoken language rather than a written one. At its height less than a century ago, Yiddish was understood by an estimated 11 million of the world's 18 million Jews. Now, due largely to World War II, three times more people speak Hebrew than Yiddish. Less than a quarter million people in the United States speak Yiddish, about half of them living in Texas. Just kidding, it's New York. Where else was it going to be? In recent years, Yiddish has experienced a resurgence and is now being taught at universities 
and there are Yiddish studies departments at Columbia and Oxford, among others. Yiddish is referred to as a mamaloshin, a mother tongue. It isn't entirely clear whether this term is one of affection or derision. The mamaloshin was the language of women and children, as opposed to the lashin koidish, the holy tongue of Hebrew studied exclusively by men. Unlike English, Yiddish is a gendered language, and the gender of the noun alters other words around it. For example, the word for the changes to der Yingle when talking about a boy who is masculine, die Mama, the mother, feminine, das Kind, the child, which is neutral. Plurals also change the definite article, as in die Kinder, the children. Where English generally sticks with s or es to make plurals, Yiddish uses n or en as in schulen and noodlen, er as in kinder or hazer, s and es as in fishers and zedas, ekh as in stetler, and im as in kvarium. Did you need all that minutia? No. Did I include it because I wanted to speak more Yiddish? Absolutely. Now let's get to the Yiddish you're speaking without even knowing it. It's nearly December when this episode comes out, so I'll quote a line from near the end of the Bill Murray classic, Scrooged. The Jews have a great word, schmuck. I was a schmuck. Now, I'm not a schmuck. Schmuck is a word for the male member, as is putz, schwanz, and schlong. You use one of those to stup. If you think I'm being too bold, you might give me a slap on the tukus. What can I say? I've got a lot of chutzpah. And it kills me to hear people say it chutzpah. Oy vey. When you see the ch, give it the ch. Mazel tov. Now you sound like a real mensch. We should go out for a drink and a nosh. Maybe a bagel and a schmear. Can you pay, though? I'm flat broke this week. I got bubkis. Oh, and can we drive? The coffee shop is a bit of a schlep. I mean, it's nice. I had a meeting there when I was trying to schmooze a new client. I go through my whole spiel. I'm super nervous because he's not reacting. And I'm thinking, I'm such a yutz. I said the wrong thing. Finally, he says, yeah, I like your shtick. I could have plotzed. I don't think I could work at a coffee shop, though. I'd be spilling drinks all over people. I'm such a klutz. Plus, you hear those coffee mavens talking about this one's Indonesian, this one's Sumatra. It all tastes like burnt water to me. Oh, come here, Bubbala. You have a little schmutz on your face. There you go. Can we swing through a gift shop or something? I need to get a little tchotchke for my booby. Not too expensive, but, you know, nothing too schlocky. It's for her 90th birthday. She likes schmaltzy things like Hummel figures and big-eyed kid paintings. Though that Meshuggah cat of hers likes to go through her mishmash of figurines and knock them off the mantle one by one. And he looks at you while he's doing it, the nudnik. It's not kosher. And like a schnook, Bubby just buys more stuff for him to break. I'd give him such a spritz. There are more, of course. A yenta is a gossipy woman, particularly an old one. Softig means an appealingly plump figure. I couldn't work that into the story, unfortunately. Glitch is also Yiddish, though it originally meant a slip-up. Ah, it would have been geschmack if I had gotten them all in. 
thank you again to the most stable genius for suggesting that segment. I'd also like to thank Twitter follower Matt at Roguish Tembak, just shot in the dark on the pronunciation there, who regularly recommends your brain on facts uh, in his list of podcast suggestions when people are looking for new things to listen to. Word of mouth is the single best way to help a show. It's been proven in surveys to be the way that people most commonly find new shows to listen to. We've got two segments from the next episode, which was requested uh, by our friend Richard Enriquez across the pond in England from our episode on British comedy entitled Panto to Python. There are few institutions in British history that have had such a massive role in shaping the daily lives of citizens as the British Broadcasting Corporation, which for decades meant the wireless radio. For many, it is an ever-present companion, from breakfast time to bedtime, from childhood through to old age. There it is telling us about ourselves in the wider world, amusing us and entertaining us, says Robin Aitken, former BBC reporter and journalist. The BBC solidified its place in the public consciousness from its beginnings in 1922 to the end of the Second World War in 1945, because these pivotal years helped redefine what it meant to be British in modern society. This was especially true during the high unemployment in the 1920s, when other forms of entertainment were unaffordable. The BBC was formed from a merger of several major radio manufacturers in 1922, receiving a royal charter in 1927, and governmental protection from foreign competition, which made it essentially a monopoly. Broadcasting was seen as a public service. A job at the BBC carried similar gravitas to a government job. Classical music and educational programs were its bedrock, with radio plays added to bring theatre to the wireless. The BBC strove to be varied but balanced in its offerings, neutral but universal. Nevertheless, some people found it elitist and not representative of the population as a whole. Expansions and offerings came slowly, if at all, in the early years. Trying to bring only the best of culture to the people meant that bawdy, music-hall-style acts had little to no place on the radio. Obscenity was judged by laws passed as early as 1727. British libel and slander laws are more strict than those in the U.S., so making fun of public figures was taboo, even in forms that would have been legal. And blasphemy? Lord, no. In 1949, the BBC issued the Variety Programs Policy Guide for Writers and Producers, commonly known as the Green Book. Among things absolutely banned were jokes about lavatories, effeminacy in men, immorality of any kind, suggestive references to honeymoon couples, chambermaids, fig leaves, ladies' underwear, prostitution, and the vulgar use of words such as basket. Not an actual basket, mind you, the Polari word basket, meaning the bulge in a gentleman's trousers. The guidelines also stipulated that such words as God, good God, my God, last, hell, damn, bloody, gorblimey, ruddy, etc. should be deleted from scripts and innocuous expressions substituted. Where the independently run music halls gave people what they wanted, the BBC radio gave people what it felt they needed. But comedy writers are nothing if not clever, and there's always a way to slip past the censors if you try. In the very beginning of radio, 
comedies lampooned the poor, because only those with money had radios. As radio ownership grew, the topics of shows broadened. The first half-hour comedy program was 1938's Bandwagon, which included musical interludes similar to a music hall show. It was effectively a sitcom, setting the stage for much of what came after. By this time, nearly every household had gotten a radio. World War II had an enormous impact on British comedy and entertainment in general. Unlike World War I, which was fought on the continent, World War II was right on top of them, with the blitz, blackouts, rationings, etc. All places of amusement, which by their nature meant lots of people would gather and could be a target for bombings, were ordered to be closed. But the government soon realized that comedy had an important role to play in helping its people to keep calm and carry on. Bonus fact, the iconic Keep Calm and Carry On poster was designed months before the war began, but never officially sanctioned for display. It only achieved its prominent position in pop culture after its rediscovery in 2001. All of the parody t-shirts still annoy me, though. Theater was allowed to continue, but television service was suspended. This brought radio back to the forefront for communication and diversion. The most popular show at the time was It's That Man Again, that ran on BBC Radio from 39 to 49. Its humor was a great unifier during the war, helping people to laugh at the things they were scared of. People would often listen huddled around their radio during a blackout. In its character archetypes, it offered a more comprehensive range of social representation than what had come before it, with characters ranging from an East End charwoman to upper-class dandies. It was so universally popular that the catchphrases it spawned, and it's regarded as the first to have really succeeded in spawning catchphrases, they were supposedly used to test suspected German spies. If you didn't know who said what, you'd be shot. Monty Python's Flying Circus aired from 1969 to 1974 and enjoyed a unique watershed success, not just for British comedy, but also for television comedy around the world. Monty Python was unlike anything that had appeared on television, and in many ways it was both a symbol and a product of the social upheaval and youth-oriented counterculture of the late 1960s. The show's humor could be simultaneously sarcastic, scatological, and intellectual. The series was a creative collaboration between Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin, and Terry Gilliam, the sole American in a group of Oxford and Cambridge graduates. The five Brits played most of the roles, with Gilliam primarily contributing eccentric animations. Although sketch comedy shows were nothing new, television had never broadcast anything as untraditional and surreal, and its importance to television is difficult to overstate. Their free-form sketches seldom adhered to any particular theme and disregarded the conventions of comedy that writers, performers, and audiences had been accustomed to for generations. Even the opening title sequence didn't follow the rules. It might run in the middle of the show or be omitted entirely. Over the run of the series, a few characters recurred, but most were written for a single sketch. The show spun off a number of feature films, like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, The Life of Brian, and The Meaning of Life. It even created a Tony Award-winning musical comedy, Spamalot, first produced in 2005 
as well as books and albums like Instant Record Collection. Decades after the show's initial run, the mere mention of dead parrots, silly walks, spam, or the Spanish Inquisition is enough to prompt laughter from even casual fans. All the members of Monty Python continued on to successful careers, but let's follow John Cleese to his next best-known project. Faulty Towers has been described as the sitcom by which other sitcoms must be measured. Voted number one in the British Film Institute's 100 Greatest British Television Programs in 2000. Its main character, Basil Faulty, was inspired by a seethingly rude hotel proprietor that John Cleese encountered while filming abroad with the Monty Python team. Cleese actually tested the character on another show in 1971, Doctor at Large, a comedy about newly graduated doctors based on the books of Richard Gordon. The setting for Faulty Towers was a painfully ordinary hotel that Basil constantly struggled to inject a touch of class into. His escapades included trying to hide a rat from a hygiene inspector, keeping a dead customer hidden, and pretending that his wife Sybil was ill during their anniversary party when, in fact, she had walked out on him. Basil was the perfect vehicle for Cleese's comedic talents, mixing the biting verbal tirades against his wife and guests with the physical dexterity utilized to charge about between self-induced disasters. Part of the success of the show is arguably the fact that it ran for a mere 12 episodes, so it never had time to run out of steam. That's a key difference between British and American television. A British show might have two writers for a season of 6-10 to 10 episodes, whereas an American show will have a team of writers for a season of 13-25 to 25 episodes. Quality over quantity, I suppose. In part, it's a reflection of the difference between the size of the TV audience in the two countries and the economics of television production. For decades, sitcoms on US TV delivered the highest ratings, whereas in Britain, the highest ratings were normally for soap operas. Faulty Towers was remade in a number of other countries, but those versions never really captured the success of the original. The tone shifted again as the 1960s gave way to the 70s. The anger of 60s revolution subsided into a more comfortable feeling in the 1970s. One of the standouts of the decade which continued into the 80s, was The Two Ronnies. A sketch show starring Ronnies Barker and Corbett, it moved away from the long-standing comic and straight man format. It was the BBC's flagship of light entertainment, the longest-running show of its genre. If we're talking modern comedy duos, we need to talk about Don French and Jennifer Saunders. Even in alternative comedy scenes, women had trouble gaining the same notoriety as their male peers. A step in the right direction was 1987's French and Saunders, a sketch show that displayed the willful amateurishness of the alternative comedy scene, but shunned both the violence and strident politics that were staples of bigger-name performers. The duo's humor was distinctly female, but not feminist, and most of their jokes were at the expense of themselves or each other. As audiences and budgets grew, the pair increasingly favored elaborate spoofs of pop stars and blockbuster movies. After the show, French starred in The Vicar of Dibley, and Saunders went on to the role she's probably best known for, Edina in Absolutely Fabulous. Thanks again, Richard, for suggesting that episode and for the get well wishes. They're always appreciated. 
I'd also like to thank fellow podcaster Augie Peterson from Short Stories by Augie Peterson for interviewing me for her website. There's also been another new development in the Wyboff world, the Brainiac Breakroom Facebook group. You can find it at facebook.com slash groups slash Brainiac Breakroom, which will be a place to share all the interesting facts you come across in your daily tour of the internet, as well as to hear super secret special announcements before they go public. And now we get into the new business. Science with Savannah Age 7 is going to be a podcast and YouTube channel with my niece, Savannah, who about five hours after I record this, officially turns seven years old. She is too clever by half. She has all my know-it-allism, but luckily she's still cute enough to get away with it. Speaking of getting away with things, we had some audio problems the day we were recording. My lavalier mics did bubkiss. Nothing. It's awful. So the only audio we got ended up being from the onboard mic of the camcorder. It is a bit rough. I appreciate your forgiveness and your patience with that, but it's also chock full of interesting information. So hopefully on the balance you'll enjoy it. So stay tuned for the first episode of Science with Savannah, Age 7. Pop quiz. How fast can a dolphin exhale? 5 miles per hour, 10 miles per hour, 20 miles per hour, 100 miles per hour. Stay tuned for the end of the video. Welcome back to Science with Savannah, age 7. On today's episode, how do animals breathe? Breathing is the act of taking in the air you need and pushing out the air you don't. That's right. For animal life on Earth, this means getting oxygen into our bodies, which we all need to live, and getting rid of carbon dioxide. It's similar to how we eat food for energy. And then we poop it out. Essentially, yes, uh, but thankfully it smells a little better. There are four types of gas exchanges. Integumentary exchange. That means through the skin. Mm-hmm. Gills. For breathing underwater. Tracheal systems. This isn't the tracheal like in your throat. Mm -hmm. This is how insects breathe. Yeah. And finally, lungs, which are found in land animals. Let's get those out of the way first, because I think people know more about them. Lungs come in all shapes and sizes, but they work the same as ours. Humans have a pair of lungs in our chest, one on the left side and one on the right, protected by the rib cage. A tube called the trachea connects the lungs to the mouth and nose. Mm -hmm. Inside the lungs, the trachea branches off into bronchi which branch off into bronchioles. For people with asthma and other conditions like me, these tubes can swell up and it gets hard to get air into your lungs. There's also a wide muscle underneath the lungs called the diaphragm. When your body needs more oxygen, the brain signals the diaphragm to move downwards, which expands your lungs to draw in air. Our bodies are made up of lots of tiny cells and an adult can have 37 trillion, that's 37 and 12 zeros. All those cells need oxygen to do their jobs. When you breathe in, air goes into your lungs, 
through the alveoli. This is where oxygen and carbon dioxide are exchanged. Tiny blood vessels called capillaries run next to the alveoli. As the heart pumps blood past the alveoli, red blood cells pick up oxygen and drop off carbon dioxide, the waste product created by doing anything. These red blood cells carry the oxygen to every cell in the body, giving them the oxygen they need and taking away the carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. This happens every time you breathe, all day. All day, yeah. It's easy for us to breathe oxygen out of the air, but what about animals that live underwater? They can't all come to the surface for air like whales do. That's why fish have gills. The tissue in gills is very thin, just one cell thick. It's so thin the gases in the water can move through them. Because gills are so thin, they're protected by a flap called the operculum. The fish opens and closes the flap by opening and closing its mouth. Water is forced through the gills and then out the back of the operculum. There are capillaries in the gills, just like in our lungs, so the oxygen can be taken from the water into the animal's blood, and CO2 can diffuse through the cells of the gill and back out into the water. Then the blood moves through their bodies like it does in animals with lungs. Most animals with gills are fish, but you can also find gills on hermit crabs, axolotls, tadpoles, and even pill bugs. They're crustaceans, like lobsters. That's why they like to live under rocks on the ground where it's nice and damp. Now things get a little differenty. Some insects have air tubes going through their exoskeleton that open to the outside world. They're called trachea, like the tube in your throat and the holes that open up to the outside are called spiracles. Insects don't have blood the same way we do. Instead of oxygen coming in one place and being carried through the body by blood, the spiracles mm -hmm. are all over the body. So there are tracheal tubes going into all of the tissue. That's right. This tracheal system actually limits the size an insect can be. The bigger the bugs, the more oxygen they need. It means they would need longer tracheae. Without lungs to pull the air in, the air won't move down long tubes on its own, the same way it would down a little short tube. The last kind of animal breathes through its skin, but in a different way. The integument is the skin of an animal. Very small animals like worms that live in moist places breathe through their skin called integumental exchange. Like the other three types of breathing, earthworms have capillaries just under their skin. As the worms move through the soil, they create air pockets. The worms take in oxygen from the air pockets and release carbon dioxide right through their outer surface. Air dissolves in the mucus of their skin, so to be able to exchange gases, earthworms have to stay moist. Moist. But if they are in too much water, they will eventually drown because they don't have gills to get oxygen from the water. This is a broad overview, but there are always special cases. Take birds, for example. They have lungs like land mammals, but they also have extra bits and pieces. Birds have air sacs in their body to help them get the most out of the air they breathe. Air gets pulled into the lungs as usual. But when they exhale, they push the air from their lungs into the two air sacs in their abdomen. 
These sacs are lined with blood vessels to absorb more oxygen. The air then moves into a second set of air sacs in the chest and neck. It's almost like birds have three sets of lungs. Air makes a big circle in a bird's body, unlike the U-turn it makes in ours. That's why smoke and other aerosols are really dangerous for birds. For us, air goes in and out the same way, which means tainted air can be expelled from our lungs easily. For birds, it's almost impossible. Birds can cough, but coughing will really only clear their throat or nostrils. That's why pneumonia or any other fluid buildup can kill a bird. They just can't cough it up. Not every animal breathes through their faces. Some animals breathe through their butt. Certain kinds of turtles breathe through their mouth and their cloaca, which is the opening they use to pee, poop, and lay eggs. When a turtle hibernates, it buries itself in cold water for up to five months. To survive, it has to change a lot of things about the way its body works. Some processes, like getting energy from burning fat, become anaerobic, meaning they work without oxygen. Without ribs that expand and contract, the turtle has muscles that pull the body toward the openings of the shell to allow it to inhale, and more muscles to squish the turtle's guts against its lungs to make it exhale. The combination makes for a lot of work, and that costs the turtle a lot of calories. Since the turtle is hibernating and not getting up to eat, it needs to breathe in a way that uses less energy. That's where butt breathing comes in. Sacs next to the cloaca are lined up with blood vessels. Oxygen enters these blood vessels and the sacs are squeezed to move the blood out. The turtle is asleep and he's not embarrassed. There are also land animals that can breathe underwater. Herpetologists, or scientists who study reptiles, have found the river anole lizard in Costa Rica is able to hide from predators underwater for up to 15 minutes at a time. Scientists film a lizard underwater and saw a tiny bubble inflating and deflating at the top of her head. The lizard seemed to be recycling her air like a scuba diver breathing through a tank. Some kinds of spiders and beetles do this too, but the river anole is the first reptile that scientists have observed, and they aren't really sure how it does it. Now it's time for the fact fire. Your right lung is bigger than your left lung, with three lobes instead of two, because your left lung needs to share space with your heart. Your lungs are the only organ that will float in water, since they have air in them, like a beach ball. The ancient Egyptians had a hieroglyph of lungs attached to a windpipe to symbolize the unity between Upper and Lower Egypt. Horses only breathe through their noses. The world record for a person holding their breath is 22 minutes and 22 seconds, achieved by a German freediver. At rest, humans exhale 17.5 milliliters or 0.59 ounces of water per hour. Mm -hmm. You lose about four times that amount if you're exercising, though. So, Savannah, what sorts of things did we teach the people today? That some animals have gills and some animals have lungs. Mm -hmm. There's also the 
integumentary exchange. What was the fourth one? There was lungs, gills, the integumentary, and the tracheal system. Remember, that's insects breathing through little tubes in their exoskeleton. What else are you curious about? How many moons does each planet have? That's a really good question. Maybe we'll answer that next time on Science with Savannah, H7. Our pop quiz question, a dolphin can exhale at over 100 miles per hour. When full, proper episodes of Science with Savannah come out, on the YouTube version, there will also be bloopers at the end. I tried including them on the audio version, but so many of them are just Savannah bouncing around and making faces and doing, you know, standard seven-year-old things that just didn't translate to an audio medium. And Your Brain on Facts will be back with a brand new episode next Tuesday and every Tuesday. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.